welcome to today's episode of Say Word. We got a special guest, Iyad Abdi. We got what the up? usual crew. We got the usual crew. We got Hirsch. We got Eddie. We got our man Batter. Iyad, welcome to the show. We're happy to have you today. Thank you for having me. This is my first podcast debut, and I'm excited to be here. Excellent. We're, we're, we're happy to be part of the experience. So for our audience, for those of you who don't know Iyad, Iyad is an extraordinaire, uh, a master's, currently a master of science student in urban planning and policy design at Politecnico di Milano. How did I do there? Perfect. Perfect. Also known as the Polytechnic University of Milan. He is also a graduate of New York University's College of Arts and Science with a Bachelor's of Arts in Urban Design and Architecture Studies. So we can almost consider him a urban planning or an urban designer expert. He is, uh, most of his interests lie innovative, people-centric and sustainable approaches to design and also policy governance to solve the emergent challenges of tomorrow's city. So a really well-rounded brother, and we're happy to have you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that generous introduction. I just took it from your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> yeah, so you, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure you've listened to our episodes before. We have a very unique format of how we, we structure our conversations. And so we're going to start off with our fun topic. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you know what our fun topic, or you can probably guess what the fun topic is going to be today. Oh, yeah. It's something that everyone's been talking about this entire week. And we're talking about the infamous slap. So at the 94th Academy Awards, Will Smith went up, on, walked up on stage and slapped Chris Rock after a comment he made about Jada Pickens Smith. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right. I'm out here. Uh-oh, Richard. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. There's tons of reactions. Everyone has an opinion on it. We'd be remiss if we didn't talk about it today on Say Word. Iyad, what was your initial reaction when you saw the clip? To be honest, when I first saw it, I thought it was a stunt. Because like the way he slapped Chris and then walked off kind of looked like an act. And I think everyone thought so too until he started heckling him from his seat and cursing. And then it was like, wow, okay, this is for real. Um, but yeah, I was uh, also taken aback and kind of surprised that this was happening. It was strange because like he was laughing just before, exactly. like the, you know what I mean? Like he was laughing and he looked like he was like taking part in the joke. And then, yeah, even the way he was walking up, the way he was strutting, it looked like it was like kind of like a, like a theatric strut. Yeah. And like kind of assessing the situation from like a kind of ESPN sports center instant replay type perspective. It looked like <laughs> Will was laughing at the joke at first until Jada shot him that look. And then that prompted him to do what he did. And that's why I'm just not entirely sure that Mr. Willard Smith's reaction was entirely genuine from my point of view. But at the same time, who am I to assess another man's emotional reaction to a situation like that? But just like for me, it kind of felt, I don't know, not entirely genuine. Also, you think that like he wasn't going to do anything to begin with and then he was going to prompt it. Okay. He was laughing. <laughs> Interesting. Gentlemen, what's your take? Hirsch, you might have an answer for this. If this were in the hood, would Will Smith's act Let's be go. justified? Oh. <laughs> okay. The thing Especially, is- imagine, and this is in front of the mandem. This is like, yeah, yeah, you got the guys around. Absolutely. And Will not. Smith and, and Chris is is roasting your girl. Yo, some of your wife. I would surmise that someone is leaving in a stretcher. I don't know who it is, <laughs> but, but it's, it would have got ugly. Uh, I think it's uh, the, the challenge is that um, like this is unacceptable behavior regardless. Like I know that there are a lot of undertones um, and I think Batter might, I don't know if Batter has like a dissenting view on this. I know that there's undertones about um, uh, like 
Jada and her hair and alopecia and alopecia is something serious. Like it really, it's a real uh, thing. Yeah. Yeah. It really yeah. Like, damages people's psyche and whatnot. But uh, I, I just, like he had said, he was laughing at it. So all these people were talking about, like, he knows about the pain. It's like, why wouldn't you have that gut reaction in the beginning? If you knew that's exactly what he was like joking about. So to me, I was surprised that he, that transition from him laughing to like getting up and being serious happened off camera. So it was the weirdest, like disjointed image I've seen. Like he's laughing, then he gets up, smacks him. Chris Rock, I commend him for like keeping it. Cause it, it was, I got secondhand embarrassment. I'm not gonna lie to you guys. I got secondhand embarrassment. Seeing yeah. Smack another black guy on stage. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I felt like the fact that Chris Rock like kind of kept it together because it would have been so much more ugly to your point, Ahmed, if they went the hood route and, and started boxing each other on stage. I think that image would have been worse. Um, so yeah, I think, I think what, what was pointed to make sense. Like to me, I, uh, Will Smith has been under a lot of pressure. I can't get in the man's head, but a lot has been said. His family is always on social media, eclectic family to say the least. So there's always like strange headlines coming up. I I saw something about like Tupac or Jada sharing a letter from Tupac celebrating his 50th birthday. And no man on this line can say that they wouldn't feel the way about that. <laughs> no man on this line, can say dead or alive, would <laughs> not feel a way about that. So I don't know if he was trying to like channel that aggression that maybe he thinks like, oh, I'm missing this. Like, there's a lot of jokes around that about like what Tupac would have done and, and and all that jazz. But uh, it seems like this was a breaking point. Like, I don't think this joke, um, the reaction that it got was like in line with what he said. I think something must have cracked or something must have um, yeah, broken within him to make him do this. And I, I'm just gonna throw a hypothesis out there. He, let, he uh, boycotted the Oscars for a year. Um, you can tell that the man has been in his career, hits after hits, 30 years in his career or something like that. And this is his first Oscar, you know? So maybe there's that un, like that that feeling of like, yo, I deserved this a long time ago, and I've been being disrespected, and I I, I keep getting overshadowed, and you know, on on my oh, night, yeah, night that that yeah. I'm gonna be honored, like someone's gonna disrespect me on top of that, you know. So oh, interesting, it's like it, it threw some shade on what should have been yeah. like his night, you know, like to finally just be celebrated. But at the end of the day, that's not really an excuse because celebrities should have thick skin. And to be honest, I just didn't I didn't see that joke being so bad that it elicited that reaction. But I'm happy to, you know, hear different thoughts. Yeah, you know, just to start on that, I think like the violence and like like recognizing decorum, notwithstanding all that stuff, notwithstanding, that was his moment, right? And now because of what he did that's his and chris rock's moment and you can never separate the two anymore right the culmination of his career great career right um to that point now he shares that with someone he probably shouldn't right someone who probably doesn't have that same experience that he has of being an excellent you know representative of his community of his family etc right and that all just becomes meaningless in that moment right and so like all the other things like oh you shouldn't you know you know violence is wrong oh he should be more professional whatever all those conversations yeah sure but at the end of the day for him he should recognize that like he let that moment get away from himself and that should be the important thing for him and the other thing i wanted to say is putting this in context with chris rock's career i don't know if you've ever seen the documentary black hair uh black hair was an interesting thing for me to watch i don't know was it 10 years ago and I thought it was great, right? Then I saw it a couple of years ago. And if you notice, he speaks fairly critically and there's sections fairly critically about like black men experiences with their hair, like why they can't wear dreads at work, why they have to shave their beards and all that stuff. And I, that's why it really resonated with me. But if you look at how he speaks about black women's hair, it's it's essentially the butt of every joke in the movie. And it's 
kind of problematic, right? And so what he did on stage was kind of a continuation of here are black women, they are going to be the butt of my joke, right? Um, and now if you put that in context, right? He openly makes fun of Jada Pinkins' hair, right? And so the Chris Rock has this history um, that's kind of like he goes for this low-hanging fruit, but he does it in a space that's it's not a black space. The Oscars are not a black space. It's a, a heavily white environment, right? And so that leads me to the, my last point, which is Chris Rock has always been this kind of window or gateway into black culture for white people, right? His stand-up, right, on Netflix, it was great, right? I thought it was great, but he had one joke where he had to tell, and I was like, bro, you're going to lose a lot of people on that one joke, right? And that's Chris Rock's career in a nutshell. It's kind of like Dave Chappelle in the trans community. Dave Ch Chappelle can't stay away from that one joke, right? And that's what comedians do. They like to pick and prod. They like to do those things, right? So all that to say, you know, what Chris Rock said is probably wrong. It was, if it was scripted, if it was not, doesn't matter who said it, right? There's no single writer that's more important than Chris Rock on that stage, right? And in that sense, you know, I wish Will would have shown a different side of himself, but it happened and now we're having this conversation and a lot of people are jumping into this conversation. It's also being very problematic, you know, the types of conversations that we're having around it, right? So I just think that there's so much that happened in those two minutes that, you know, everyone's going to plant a flag somewhere. And uh, I just think that, like, where I'll carve it out, like, I just think that Chris Rock has had this history. And I think people should know that, like, if you put everything in context, it's not as simple as, like, oh, Will Smith slapped the shit out of someone, right? And, oh, let's take everything away from him, right? Um, not to defend him, but just to put a little more nuance into the conversation. I think Iad wanted to say something. Sorry. Yeah, no, I completely agree with all of your points. I think they're totally valid and on point i think another person that hasn't gotten much consideration and who i want justice for is will packer the man that produced that oscar event the first black man to produce an oscar show mm -hmm. and i think it's unfortunate that his production has been kind of stained by this whole chris rock will smith uh, mess and that everyone now knows it as kind of the oscar where chris uh where will smith slaps chris rock and um yeah, I think overall the optics just weren't good. And I really kind of wish the whole thing didn't happen because um, it was just kind of distasteful all the way around. Although I have to say the memes have been phenomenal <laughs> as a result amazing. of this ordeal. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. yeah, amazing. I'm, I'm kind of just disappointed around the whole fact that it happened on like the public stage. Like mm -hmm. if I were Will and I was offended and I was compelled to punch or slap Chris Rock in the face. I can't believe he slapped him and not punched him too. But that's a story for a different day. But needless to say, it, it would have been better if like, you know, they waited like till after the event, they were amongst themselves. You know, Will Smith could have gotten a slap in, you know, against Chris Rock. They could have talked it out, hashed it out. And then like, all this would have been behind us, right? But he had to do it on the public stage. And like, that's the embarrassment. Like Will yeah. Smith apologized. So I know there's a lot of people defending him. But like, I I think him apologizing, you could say it's to save coin, but there's a reason it's there to save coin, right? Like ultimately what he did was unprofessional. And I think um, there's like, <clears throat> I don't think his Oscar should be taken away. I don't think it's the worst thing that's happened at the Oscars. I think like, it's a, it's a trope, you know, like the black, black men can't control their anger. So I know it's going to be used as rhetoric and whatnot, so I could see. Correct. That. Yeah. Um, but I still think, like, ultimately, we should hold ourselves to a higher standard. Hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. It's not. Yeah. It's not about like white fragility or oh, we, yeah. we we have to like perform a certain way. Like, no, yeah. that's just wrong across any culture. Like, whether it's our, you know, whether it's within the black community, outside of the black community, it's just like an action that is going to never be looked high upon. So. I yeah. kind of I feel weird when black people are like, oh, why why do we have to perform or cha uh, channel our anger in a certain way? Like that's the those are the defenses that I feel are a bit weird. Like it's just not acceptable. Yeah, we'll move on to our main topics, and and yeah, we're gonna basically be focusing on you and 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 what you do for a living. I know when I was prepping for for today's topic, I 
you know, rightfully so. I don't know a lot about urban planning. I probably know a lot about the high level, and I'm sure that's the case for a lot of our listeners. So we'd love to, to start with just, you know, getting your perspective in layman's terms. You know, how would you or what would you define urban design as? And why is it something that we should all care about? Yeah. Um, so urban design and urban planning are kind of about the deliberate technical and political process for designing, developing, or transforming a territory towards some kind of desired vision or outcome. And so it deals with various aspects like land use, transportation, infrastructure, while also various adjacent disciplines like economic development, public health, legal policy mechanisms, urban justice, and environmental sustainability and climate resilience. Um, why it's crucial that we care about it is because this kind of desired vision or outcome that urban design works towards is essentially arbitrary in that it determ it's determined by those in power. So yeah. urban planning is and always has been a very political and hardly ever a neutral practice. Um, and this is why I think people should care about it because it's exactly political. So it responds to the interests of those involved. And the actions of urban planning also last a long time. So it's important that we try to get it right by being as inclusive as possible from the start and trying to kind of guide how our cities develop. That's incredible. Thanks for that that breakdown. What inspired you to get into it? It, it sounds like when you described the why, we got a little bit of insight into that, but I'd love to hear the, oh, uh, man. The, yeah. the, the, the why behind why you got <laughs> into it. For sure. So I grew up in a town called Jackson, Tennessee. It's a mid-sized town between Nashville and Memphis. And Jackson is kind of emblematic of the kind of predominant typology of cities and towns in middle America. So there's like a historic downtown that spans a few blocks and is walkable, built in a grid plan with three, four-story buildings. But then the rest of the city kind of follows the typical American dream typology, if we can call okay. it that. Okay. Like single family homes with front and backyards, big box stores, you know, the Walmart, the Target, commercial strips, functional zoning, subdivision neighborhoods, minimal sidewalks, supercar centric, basically. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up in this kind of environment. And then as a kid, I could never get over how hard there were hardly any sidewalks to allow me to walk to like a friend's house or to a store nearby and everything required using a car to get around. And um, one of my favorite shows growing up was Arthur. Shout out to Arthur. Great show. Last episode actually came out, I think last month. Um, and I say this because in Arthur, you know, he and his friends are always walking around everywhere to school, you know, to the sugar bowl, to the library. And in the back of my mind, I always wanted to live in Elwood City in we like a it. walkable neighborhood exactly yeah. <laughs> but then we didn't have this in my town so yeah for reference there's like a french marxist uh philosopher and sociologist um who talked about this concept back in the 60s called the the right to the city yes um and it's basically about looking at cities from the perspective of an ordinary citizen and his name was Henri Lefebvre basically looking at cities from the perspective of ordinary citizens as the main protagonist from whom the city should be tailored toward instead of businesses or like industries that generate a lot of tax revenue for cities. So when I was in high school, the only place like me and my friends would like hanging out was our tiny downtown. And so we'd drive there and then we'd get out, walk or skate around, maybe go to the only coffee shop that existed there and kind of get a taste of this urban experience. Mm. But then also... Um, when I was young, my family would come to Toronto and spend our summers there with my aunt and my cousin. Um, and Toronto really just kind of opened my eyes completely because it was that kind of vision of Arthur that I had that was matching up with reality, you know, walking everywhere, taking the TTC. Because at that point, I'd never been to New York yet. So Toronto yeah. was like my first true urban experience. Sure. And despite yep. being interested in architecture and cities, to be honest, I'd never heard of urban planning as a field or profession until I went to college in New York at NYU. So originally I planned to study philosophy, but as soon as I discovered urban design and architecture as an actual profession, urban design, I immediately declared it. And now I'm doing my master's in urban planning and policy design in Milan. Um, and for me, urban planning just kind of captures all my kind of interests because it's foundationally both a science and an art and relies on 
philosophical theory, technical skill, political know-how to achieve or work toward this kind of greater social aim. That's quite a story. That's quite a story how like your experiences living in Tennessee and then coming to Toronto kind of shaped all of that as well too. So thanks for thanks for sharing that. So in your opinion, you know, you talked even a lot about this when you described like you know why we should care about it, you know, how how cities are structured. How has urban design influenced and perpetuated inequality and discrimination? And from, from what you've studied so far and, and experiences that you've gathered, would you say that there's such thing as bias when it comes to design? Definitely, 100%. And I could say a lot about this. But I think uh, many people familiar or listening to this may be familiar with the concept of redlining, the historical practice where yeah. the U.S., um, basically in the U.S. in the early 30s and lasted up until the 60s where banks kind of systematically discriminated in issuing home loans to certain communities in the U.S. because the U.S. government had created this kind of color-coded map called residential security maps um, of urban neighborhoods to assist their, assess their credit worthy, worthiness. Uh, so green was like for the best areas of desirable people, and we all know what that means, of safe investments, and blue was for good white-collar families, yellow for declining working class, and then red, of course, meant hazardous, detrimental influences. And of course, like this map essentially kind of reflected the racial makeup of the cities with basically predominantly black and brown and immigrant neighborhoods being drawn in red. So disqualifying those residents in those neighborhoods from accessing any kind of federally backed loans, effectively barring them from purchasing or refinancing their homes. Um, and studies have shown that like beyond just being implicitly like racist and classist, the maps were basically also flawed and arbitrary in trying to achieve what they were designed to do, which is assess credit worthiness. Um, and that the long-term effects are still with us today because we see racial residential segregation that still exists. And of course the racial wealth gap, since owning the home is an asset. And if you don't own it, then you can't pass that asset down to your children. Yeah. I think another way urban planning has kind of perpetuated inequality has been in where major urban projects tended to be located and whose neighborhoods those large projects tended to displace or fragment as a result. Like a lot of times you'll have like chemical plants uh, being located near the most disadvantaged areas or how during the urban renewal period of the mid 20th century, a lot of the highways and expressways that ran through North American cities ran through mostly black, low income, or immigrant areas that were deemed blighted, which goes back to the redlining that I was talking about. And with no kind of economic or political power, these populations could hardly do anything to stop this slum clearance effort and the demolition of their homes against the ambitions and visions of urban technocrats who were often mostly white men of privilege uh, from making top-down decisions about the fate of their neighborhoods. And so like this kind of point really hones in on the ideology of the era, which was this modernist approach to cities of top-down decision-making, very rational, total, heavy-handed urban transformations, um, essentially telling people, you know, we as the urban planners know best how you people should live. And that was really kind of the ethos of the time. And the kind yeah. of uh, patron saint of this approach we could really say is the Swiss French architect named Le Corbusier. He was a huge advocate and his ideas were really influential in kind of shaping this turn. Um, and I'm sure like those listening who studied architecture may be familiar with that name and his ideas. But of course, like the reality of like this kind of planning has been detrimental on our cities and communities. And um, in mid-century New York City, there was a man named Robert Moses and racist yeah unelected public official yeah was arguably like the most politically effective and destructive planner in shaping new york in his image and he would like route the brooklyn queens expressway to run intentionally through an immigrant or a black population even if it would make more sense to bypass that neighborhood just to displace and demolish those neighborhoods and he would make sure that certain you know bridges over a parkway would be low enough to prevent any kind of city bus from going under the bridge to prevent any kind of low income or undesirable people, as he called them, from accessing these beaches. 
So only middle-class families with cars, private cars, could access these beaches and no public buses would physically be able to drive. It just kind of really speaks to the need for diversity in this field and in all fields, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Which is like the the, the, the question that I have. Like I, Again, like I mentioned, I'm not by any means exposed to the field, but like now with uh, folks that look more like you that are entering into the field, is there a shift that's starting to happen uh, with the inequality and the biases that exist in the, in the field? For sure. And since then, the field has definitely moved toward a more participatory kind of micro-grain approach of public okay. participation okay. and involving local community stakeholders. Um, but honestly, like this more gentle approach is, is something we've learned from that modernist era, but it's also partly a reality of kind of the neoliberal era of the public sector kind of stepping back due to lack of funds or, and or public will, and instead letting the private sector kind of step in in that role, which can also lead to uh, some negative yeah. issues like yeah. most notably gentrification. Yeah. yeah. So as planners now, we're kind of trying to be trained toward being more aware of these kind of potential injustices and trying to balance the interests of many parties while at the same time trying to advocate for the interests of those most marginalized. Like, for example, actually right now in the U.S., at least, there's a growing active effort that's reached the federal level called highway teardowns or freeway removals, Yeah, which is about taking down, tearing down these large highways and freeways that run through these communities and have caused pollution problems for the locals and trying to kind of rectify and reconnect these neighborhoods. In fact, actually, Robert Moses's Brooklyn Queens Expressway that I mentioned earlier is actually currently facing this teardown effort. Nice. So, yeah, there's definitely yeah. is a bias always in urban design, but that bias can either be bad bias or good bias, depending on one's interests. Correct. Yeah. And I'm simplifying and I'm paraphrasing here, but they've given you all a seat at the table. Yeah. Like us but they've made exactly. it a way more complex by adding now other interests into, into the conversation. hundred yeah, percent. How funny. Um, so we think about the pandemic where, you know, we're always talking about the pandemic here on say word, uh, it should be say word, the pandemic, but the, the pandemic has shown a lot of light on how our cities and communities are designed. Um, what are some of your key takeaways from that? So key takeaways, I think in the field right now, some bus terms y'all might have heard are like the idea of the 15-minute city, um, of making cities more functionally diverse and accessible to where one can run errands or fulfill their daily needs within a 15-minute walk or bike radius of where they live. I like um, that. Okay. Yeah. And people really enjoy going for walks during the pandemic and cities are trying to kind of lean into that, especially for the population's physical and mental health. Yeah. Um, another has been how cities have adopted, uh, ad adapted to COVID measures, um, so just trying to continue the kind of outdoor dining that have emerged as a result, and people really seem to enjoy that and would like to see that continue. Um, although there is a bit of a tension there with local residents, um, but me personally, I would like to see it continue. Mm -hmm. I think another thing is environmental quality. Many cities saw a decrease in smog and air pollution from everything being halted, that people kind of realize how pleasant cities can be when we learn to kind of decrease and manage our carbon output. And oh, finally, I would say, yeah, I think finally I would say resilience, um, how cities are much more prepared now for a public, from a public health standpoint in being able to mobilize quickly, distributing vaccines or sanitizing public transit on the regular. Yeah. I remember like early in the pandemic, there were like these images of uh, the subway benches in New York that were like clean for like the first time in ages. And then everyone was like, yo, like the benches were actually light brown the whole time. Everyone just assumed it was <laughs> painted dark brown. Those benches are disgusting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they also cleaned the subway too. I don't know if they were doing that before. Maybe they were, but like they do it a lot more frequently. Yeah. Like I feel okay sitting down on the on the subways in New York now. Yeah. Uh, Batter, I know that, <clears throat> you know, you've also had some background in this. Would love to, would love to hear some of your perspectives so far. Yeah, I know, uh, I know that, uh, you know, you spoke a little bit about, you know, highway removal and I guess the impetus for why 
we start to do some of these things. And in Toronto specifically, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Jane Jacobs. Yeah. And uh, and a lot of her work is influenced by some of the things that you mentioned, like the right to the city ideals of Henri Lefebvre. And she was largely responsible for saving our cities, Chinatown and Kensington communities by stopping a highway from being built. Um, but on the flip side, there's this critique that such initiatives are only motivated by this need of like extracting something from that community. So like, you know, where will we go to get our dumplings now? Where will I get my Chinese food? Where will I get my cheap groceries, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so recently there was some, uh, another uh, similar uh, issue like that where uh, a very popular patty place on Eglinton West just closed down called Randy's Patties. And there was, general outrage that how could this place close down right not knowing that you know we've had this development happening on Eglinton West so we're building I'm not sure if you're aware we're building this like crosstown LRT slash subway and it has been about 10 years that they've been building it on along this community and that's one of the reasons this patty place is closing down right mm -hmm. and so I guess where I'm getting at is this idea of nimbyism right it's you know, mm -hmm. you don't want you want these things to happen in your community, but not in your own backyard. Right. And then when the thing disappears that you like, all of a sudden it's an outrage. And Toronto is very haphazardly developed. A lot of the things that you mentioned, like garden cities, towers in the park, these cookie cutter communities. And we've had we've been very much a testing ground. And now it's kind of all big, a big mashup of things. Right. And so maybe talk about nimbyism a little bit in your experience right in tennessee for instance i'm sure yeah. i'm sure that's a big thing there um talk a bit about that i'm curious yeah um i think nimbyism is very effective in kind of limiting the housing supply and worsening the affordability crisis that a lot of cities are experiencing right now because at the end of the day the affordability of housing comes down to supply and demand and the more housing we build the greater the supply to match the demand which will reduce the rising cost of housing in the u.s we built fewer homes in the past decade than in any decade since the 1940s post-world war ii and despite the population growth doubling since then and the rate of new housing being constructed has been nearly flat on average since the 50s petty you want to throw in your question yeah i think these are these are some really great stats and i think um I'm very, very much new to this. This is very, 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 very helpful for me to know, Same. especially urban design. Same. And also like um, understanding the intersection between policy, because uh, sometimes you go to a new place and then um, you say like, wow, this is a very beautiful city or this is a really well constructed. Um, and I've done my fair bit of traveling. But yet, I also wanted to ask you, where are some of the places that are doing like a remarkable job in terms of urban design? What makes mm. it? so different because i think we've been talking about the north american experience but even in italy what are they doing what's so different and given the fact that some places have an aging population um in the mm -hmm. world have a more aging population than we saw it during covid um whereas others have a much younger population but may not have say the financial capital mm -hmm. right now being in italy uh, milan is actually one of the most old let's say has one of the most oldest demographics of uh, all the cities in Europe. And so this is actually one question that's very big on the agenda for the city of Milan is how do we kind of tailor city to be more young friendly. One of the cities that's super successful in this that I'm familiar with is Copenhagen. Copenhagen compared to its kind of peer cities in Europe has a much yeah. lower age index and much higher kind of birth rate and younger population. And they've been kind of successful in this area, which maybe we could attribute to kind of their social safety net, but also the culture being very kind of family oriented, bike friendly, environmentally conscious, very much centered on a social welfare system of taking care of everyone. In terms of um, the global South, that's I think where the biggest challenge is going to be for this field, because that is really where the young population is really burgeoning. I'm not sure what the answer is, but I think that is going to be something that's definitely worth exploring. And I can't wait to see. Well, hopefully you're, you get involved um, in some way. Yeah, yeah. We need more Africans in the field. Yeah. You know, paving the way and, and yeah, get, getting hired to, to help solve these challenges. Um, funny thing about NIMBYism, I just wanted to make a, one point 
it's it's very strong in Toronto. Uh, so I know all my Toronto people oh, have yeah. kind of heard complaints around it. And I think mm. there was one in the summer, there was like a development proposal for this like really upscale neighborhood. And the development proposal was supposed to take a portion of the parking lot for a community center. And I watched a local report where a man really like actually stood and said that the parking lot was like the heartbeat of the community. Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Like he actually made that case that like, it's so important to us, you know, we we use it often. I I just found it very funny. Like, uh, but I would say the more, the, the key factor or the most interesting factor to me um, is how, uh, a lot of people who are retiring are kind of using these homes, especially in Toronto, as like their retirement fund. Yeah. Uh, so kind of might as well, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, once the money is there, um, yeah, you mentioned it. Like the politicians have to kind of mm-hmm. acquiesce to whatever their community is telling them. So mm-hmm. like even though we can advocate for reduction in NIMBYism, if the local community just keeps advocating for it. You best believe yeah. that's going to reflect that. So I feel like it takes some um, courage, whether it's the provincial level or federal level, to really mandate some of these changes. I think Batter had a point. Yeah, just, just building on that point you made, Hirsch, as well, and something that Iyad said before, like there's these crises that are happening um, a lot, actually, in the West. And, you know, there are there are these opportunities in the global South to kind of correct things or try things that might correct things but bringing it back to the to you know our side of the world like 70 percent of toronto's zoned for single family dwellings we're one million or so below the average for a city um of comparable size so one million uh units below housing values have tripled interest rates are record lows and yet our wages have stayed the same for a long time and so a lot of people point to these things as the crisis right and so what I want to guess point point to is kind of like the public's participation in this process, right? There was this mm-hmm. interesting article a couple of years ago where Margaret Atwood was getting canceled because she stopped the development of a building across the street from her because her plants wouldn't get enough sunlight. And so people got really upset and they were like, well, if Margaret Atwood has so much say, <laughs> she's one person, but entire communities are trying to affect change and they can't. Like, how can this ever get done, right? And so maybe from your perspective, you know, you're someone who probably has more of a global experience in terms of like what you know. I had my experience working in the Ministry of Housing. It was very depressing. But maybe (laughs) from your perspective, you've probably seen more already in your career. What could you say to someone who's like, I really want to figure out how I can learn more and I really want to figure out how I can help change things in my city? Mm. For the NIMBY issue, I think the kind of YIMBY activism that, yes, in my backyard, I think is kind of sweeping a lot of cities, I see, at least in the U.S. and probably also in Canada, um, where uh, those running for city council are running on the platform of YIMBY. And so this kind of, well, like local politicians, you know, whether it's at the city or the state level are running on this kind of EMB platform. Now, recognizing that we do need new housing to match the level of demand and reduce the cost of housing. Um, And yeah, yeah, I think it's just um, maybe just that kind of community activism on the opposite end through EMBism. Are there any examples of that you can think of, like specific examples of Maybe yes. it's uh, programs that are doing this, this that are embodying YIMBY? Yeah, in California specifically, I think there, the kind of YIMBY effort has gained so much traction that it reached the state level and they passed this um, wall legislation called SB9 that, from what I know of it, allows for rezoning of these kind of single family zone areas to allow developers to build multifamily units and kind of infill areas that were previously only for single family homes, especially in Mm. a state that's so overpopulated like California and the housing costs are already like through the roof. Through the roof, yeah. Yeah. So I think just more uh, public pressure on politicians. 
and oh, activism through the community. Yeah. I, I actually didn't realize how much of an intersectionality there is between urban planning and policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I think one, like one of the misconceptions I had when I was, you know, planning for today's episode was the role of the architect, right? Um, I thought they were kind of synonymous, uh, an urban planner and an architect. Can you help us uh, unpack and understand like, what are some of the differences and how do they uh, work together? Yeah. So historically, like kind of the task of designing and planning cities was done by architects because urban planning wasn't really a profession yet. Uh, And so it was mostly about the technical kind of laying out a plan for a city. And you can think of Paris with its grand boulevard and the ubiquitous six-story buildings that kind of make Paris so iconic and give it that uniform look, which was designed by this man named Baron Haussmann for Napoleon III or a city like Washington, D.C. that was designed by the French-American military engineer and architect named Charles L'Enfant at the behest of then-president George Washington. But it wasn't until the 20th century when we saw this more kind of specialization within the field of landscape architecture, architecture, urban planning. And so as opposed to kind of the first two, landscape architecture and architecture, urban planning kind of deals more at the scale of the broader territory and the relationship between various sites and elements of the built okay. environment. Yep. Whereas yeah, architecture and landscape architecture typically work at the scale of a specific defined site. And urban planning is also more publicly oriented by default, while architecture is usually more client-based. So politics and economics and law play a much more prominent role in the transformation and decision-making process for urban planning. But both fields, I think, definitely need each other. And I advocate for more interaction between the two. Um, Because without this kind of reciprocal effort, you get these hype buildings that generate a lot of press and have an intriguing design, but stand totally isolated from the context of where they're situated and lack any kind of coherent relationship with their surrounding architecture or buildings. And similarly, I think urban planners who have the power to decide what can be built and where have to amend old zoning codes so that architects and and developers are able to design and build what citizens want, such as mixed-use housing, et cetera. Got it. Okay, so that that helps. So it sounds like for urban planners, they focus more on the macro. Mm -hmm. Basically, Uh, yes. Architectures focus more on the the micro. Um, You alluded to how there's, I guess they don't interact with each other enough. There could be, there's some area for improvement. Any insight into why that interaction doesn't happen as often as it should? Because maybe the segmentation that occurred of urban planners being in the public realm where architects are practicing in kind of the private sector. Okay. And then when, you know, you get a client to commission you to build on this specific site and, you know, you go crazy with the design because you want to make something iconic or intriguing. And then, you know, also, it's kind of the architect's own vanity in a way. And so you build something that generates, you know, the kind of hype, but then doesn't really cohere to the broader vision or the broader yeah. style of the surrounding architecture. Um, I think that that's kind of what it comes down to. Yeah. Okay. So I thought there was maybe there was an underlying challenge as to why, but it just sounds like it really boils down to almost uh, there's not conflicting or competing interests, but there's just different interests between the two. Yeah. And so there's, it requires just a level of creativity and collaboration that needs to happen between the two. Um, yeah. So recently, Diobedo Francis Kerr became the first Black laureate of the prestigious Pritzker Prize. Uh, of course, considered the highest honors in architecture. I would say he's probably someone that you know, really aligns with like that vision of like what urban planners are thinking about and then like what architecture should be. From your point of view, was this inspiring to see? Like, was this like, what was it kind of some of your initial reactions? Oh, 100%. It was very inspiring, uh, especially to have a black laureate from the continent. I think the ancestors are clapping, but I think, um, I have to be honest, I didn't exactly know who he was before the announcement was made that he'd won the Pritzker. Mm -hmm. Um, But from the little research I've done since on him and his portfolio of work, I think the honor was well-deserved. And so I congratulate him fully. 
hundred percent. Gentlemen, any, uh, any, Eddie, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, I really wanted to ask, is there a space for more, say African or even black designers now? Is there like a space, are we seeing more of their work? Um, because if this is a first laureate, I think I would be, I'll be wondering like, what about everyone else? And I think a lot of history books have always focused on European uh, architecture or design, um, or if we even look even, uh, even the Asian subcontinent as well, like we also look at their urban design there, but is there a space now, is there current spaces where black designers are able to go in and then showcase their work? Or is there a gap? Is there something there we still have to build on? And how do we get more young people interested and invested in being more designers to shape the continent? Yeah, I think especially with Kira is that a lot of his architecture was in his home country, especially even in his hometown, a lot of his prize winning architecture. And I think especially going back to what we were talking about earlier, about how what do we do with urban development happening in the global south? And I think it has to come from architects and urban planners from those contexts designing for those countries and those cities. They definitely have to come from that um, context, whether it be the city or, you know, that nation that they hope to design for. And I would love to see more of that in terms of urban development and architecture happening on the continent in the future. Yeah, because one of the things, and, and I didn't know about Kere before preparing for today's episode, but, you know, one of the things that there was a video 12 minute video that breaks down his history, his upbringing and how he got into architecture. But, you know, his whole thing, like what makes his process unique is that um, the things that he creates, it's, it's more all around the objective and the process behind that. Right. So everything is from, it's like from his upbringing and his, from his experiences and, you know, to achieve everything that you've talked about so far in our episode today, in terms of, you know, really, removing all of the atrocities and injustices that we see in urban planning and urban design, it has to come from people from the continent. Matt, you had a point? I think it's really interesting, you know, this conversation on the continent. And I think, you know, historically design, like urban design was predicated on like resource extraction, colonial administration, mining, things like that, right? So you see like these old models of like how, cities were designed like a hundred years ago and now there's this explosion of ideas and wealth and some people now i'm not really i'm the here nor there on this topic maybe we'll get your opinion on this but some people are worried that like you know these new urban forms are going to sterilize you know these dark histories and that people will forget what happened in those places right and so i don't know what would you say in terms of that dichotomy like how much should you try and save do you believe in like trying to remind people of those histories or do you believe in like trying to start anew or whatnot that's a really good question um when you say sterilize do you mean in the design of the city or design of the the city right so like for instance and i know in south africa and a lot of the places where there were a lot of protests and a lot of people killed there's now massive or like suburban sprawl these like white picket fence houses and very much if you were just to look a pic look at a picture of it you'd be like this is great i want to live here this why wouldn't anyone want to mm. live here and then you realize that the soil is literally soaked in blood right so yeah uh, not to put it too graphically but you know that's the sort of thing that i'm getting at like you know how do we grapple with that and i know there's a lot of new wealth and on the continent now and i'm sure a lot of places mm-hmm. are dealing with that for sure yeah probably has to come down to urban planners listening to the actual citizens who live in a place right. and trying to advocate for their interests because a lot of these new kind of sanitizing developments are very lucrative for cities which can be enticing from their perspective but yeah there's in terms of the kind of homogenizing aspect i think we're getting to a very interesting point i think in the design of cities and architecture where it's really hard to articulate a kind of local context you know because you go to Mm -hmm. chicago or london or tokyo and all these places kind of look the same right they all have the same Mm -hmm. kind of generic look and it's very hard to get a real authentic you know or even what is authentic kind of architecture of a place especially when we live in this hyper globalized world now and 
architectural practices have offices across the globe. So they design for different contexts with similar styles. Um, and I think that's going to be the most interesting thing, which I really like about Kere is that he really uses the kind of sustainable material. And he kind of uses this in a way that touches on one architect I really admire. He's this uh, guy called Frank Lloyd Wright, who also kind of pioneered this idea of organic architecture, of yeah. using materials that come from a place yeah. and trying to design in the context of that landscape. And that's actually probably the most, not only sustainably efficient, but also climatologically, because when you build with these materials that come from the place and design in relation to the climate, you can reduce like the energy costs and also the costs of acquiring these materials. And I think, um, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see where architecture heads after this kind of generic moment we've experienced in the past, let's say, 30, 40 years. Fascinating. Oh, great, great accent. That was really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Such a good perspective. Before we before we dial off, uh, Yad, what are some of the cool things you're working on in, in your master's currently? Uh, right now, we are working on a master plan for an area in Milan, in the southeast periphery, called Porto di Mare. And this place is kind of really interesting because it's very disadvantaged. But now there's like a very invested community, yet is also economically and politically disadvantaged. So it's trying kind of to figure out a regeneration strategy for the area while keeping, without trying to gentrify the area and keeping the people's interests in mind, while at the same time trying to benefit and better the area um, from an urban planning perspective. So it's going to be interesting and tricky to try to see how this kind of articulates itself yeah um but this is all just kind of part of the challenge of urban planning and urban design well thank you so much we're gonna end it there folks thank you all for listening yeah thank you special thank you for thank you, you for having for, me yeah yeah we, we loved it. hearing your perspective on on the slap the infamous slap but then also <laughs> getting getting serious and hearing about your your take and your perspective on urban planning and urban design so really appreciate yeah. you my man no, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you guys again.